Our scripture passage today comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 19, beginning in verse 31. Hear God's holy and authoritative word. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he, was already di- that he already died, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, so that you may also believe. For these things took place that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, They will look upon him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place there was a, the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. The grass withers and the flower fades, Amen. You may be seated. As we come to God's word, we need his help. So let us begin with a moment of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray that your spirit would help us to understand, to help us see Christ and what he has done for us to help us change as a result of your Spirit's work in our lives. Give us ears to hear today. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, we're continuing our sermon series in John's Gospel. And last week we went into some details about the crucifixion of Jesus. And so now we are entering into this scene of the aftermath. John here gives us, in our verses, a clue as to why he's been writing these things. Of course, we've said over and over again, John chapter 20, that John wrote these things so that we would believe Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, we would have life. But in our verses today, he talks about this testimony, verse 35. He who saw it bore witness. This testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you also may believe. John includes particular details about the crucifixion and the piercing of Jesus and his subsequent burial in the tomb. All of the accounts are different from the different Gospels, not that they are in conflict with one another, but that they highlight different details. Some of them have overlap, others f- 
focus on certain things. And John has focused here on some of the ways in which Christ's removal from the cross, his ultimate end, took place to fulfill the scriptures. But he also brings up other characters for us and other themes for us to consider. And so we'll look at those details together. But first of all, John highlights for us in verse 31 that it is the day of preparation. Last week we talked about how Jesus indeed was the Passover lamb. That this is taking place right at the time of the Passover. And that theme is one in which John is drawing us again and again in this passage. It is the day of preparation. It is the time of the feast at hand. The time where you are to prepare the lamb that is going to be slain so that you could remember at the time of the Exodus when God passed over the Israelites because they had the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. John is reminding us that as the day of preparation, because it's the day of preparation, the Jews, they don't want these bodies on the crosses outside of their city. The people coming in for the feast, it would have been, you know, this unclean reality to have corpses nearby. It's the opposite of what you want when you're thinking about worship. Everything about the temple and the worship was about life. It was about God preserving life. And so to have these bodies... It's kind of an abomination to them. And so they asked Pilate to remove them. We're told that the soldiers break the legs of the one on the right and the one on the left of Jesus. But when they saw that Jesus was already dead, they did not break his legs. Part of the reason John might be recording this is not merely... To show that his bones weren't broken. We'll get to that in a moment. But also to point out an apologetic question that would have been at play when John is writing this. So John isn't writing this in real time. John writes this after the fact. He's seen this take place. He's one of those people at the foot of the cross. And it's probably many years later he actually puts pen to paper to give an account to give to people who are going to come after him, to have the details sorted out. And one of the heresies of the day, one of the conspiracies of the day about what really happened to Jesus, right? Because to have this man come and to proclaim against the religious leaders and then to say that he was going to die and rise again and then to hear those claims from his disciples, well, the first thing you want to try to do if you are against him is to discredit their story. So John is giving us details. One of the heresies of the day was this uh, teaching called docetism. Docetism is from the Greek word that means seems. Uh, Jesus only seemed to be a man. He wasn't actually a man. He was just uh, a spirit that looked like a man. He walked around and interacted with people. Uh, but he wasn't truly man. Therefore, he couldn't truly die. Now, part of the reason somebody might believe that um, would be to protect the character of God. God can't die. God wouldn't send his son to die. 
So there was a question about whether or not Jesus truly died. So John highlights for us this encounter that he sees. That the soldiers have been ordered by Pilate to go and break the legs of these men on the crosses. And when they come to Jesus, they know he's already dead. And now we might read that skeptically and say, well, we don't know. They didn't break his legs. Maybe he you know, was faking it. If there was ever somebody who knew what a dead body looked like, it was these men. These cruel executioners for the Roman Empire who had crucified many, many, many people. Not sure why they didn't break his legs, because they do go on to kind of make sure things are up to snuff. And they were told that one of the soldiers pierced Jesus in the side with a spear and at once came out blood and water. Blood and water. So there's two kind of questions that we might have about this. How is it that blood and water come out of Jesus? And two, what is the significance of John recording for us this blood and water? So first, medically, how is it possible that Jesus, when being pierced in the side, had water and blood come out of his side? So there's a couple of theories on this. But I, what I think was most helpful for me as I dug into the details was to realize that my concept of what it would have looked like for Jesus to be pierced in the side was probably not severe enough. Jesus being lifted up on a cross high above the Roman centurions or these soldiers' uh, height, right, would have taken a spear and would have gone in a more upward motion, right? Sometimes I think about it and it's like, well, Jesus says, Thomas, put your hand in my side. And I think, okay, he just had this cut in his side. But this imagery of water, there's really only one way that water would come out of a wound, and that is if the sack around the heart would have been pierced. And so if you can imagine being pierced in the side from below, not merely into the flesh, but all the way up into the heart sack, definitely confirming his death. And out flows blood and water. We'll come back to the blood and water in a moment. And then John, in the most emphatic way possible, in verse 35, he who saw it has borne witness. I saw it, and I'm bearing witness. And my testimony is true. And I know that I'm telling the truth. I'm not insane. Belabors the point again and again so that you may also believe. Believe what? Believe that this was no ordinary man. We've talked along the way about how Jesus has been in control of all of the details of everything that has happened. He was in the garden and they came to arrest him and at the one word from his mouth, they fell on their faces in fear. And yet he goes with them willingly. And then he goes and indeed could have brought 
a legion of angels to deliver himself. And he submits to the process. He humbles himself and is humiliated by the Romans, beaten, crucified, and now has died. But we see here in this passage that Jesus is still in control of everything that's happening, even after his death. Because these things took place in his sovereign rule, that not one of his bones will be broken and that they will look upon him whom they have pierced. Where are these scriptures? What is John drawing for us to understand? Well, first we look at this passage. Not one of his bones will be broken. Now, this might be an allusion to Psalm 34, verse 20, which says, He keeps all my bones, not one of them is broken. It's typically referred to as a messianic psalm. But remember what we're looking at here, and as John has painted the picture for us, this is the Passover. And there are two places where we have descriptions of what you're supposed to do with your Passover lamb. Exodus chapter 12, verse 46 says this, It shall be eaten in one house, and you shall not take any of, it, any of the flesh outside of your house, and you shall not break any of its bones. Numbers chapter 9, verse 12 says, They shall leave none of it until the morning nor break any of its bones. According to all of the statutes of the Passover, they shall keep it. Jesus comes as the Passover lamb. And in God's sovereign providence and control of all things, follows even the laws he's commanded his people to follow that not even a bone of his Passover lamb will be broken. John wants his readers, he wants you and me to believe. To believe what? To believe that Jesus is the Passover lamb. It draws on this imagery of blood and water, does it not? What do we think of when we think of blood? Why is it blood and water? course we have the image of blood we think of the forgiveness of sins there's no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood so there's a need for our guilt to be removed and that is part of a sacrifice that the blood would be spread onto the altar be poured out so that sins could be forgiven jesus in the shedding of his blood forgives our sins covers our sins his blood has been put on our do doorposts, perhaps metaphorically, so that we can be passed over. It is the imagery of the atonement. His blood instead of ours. But why water? Well, there's these two things that go together all the time in the Bible, and that is that forgiveness also includes cleansing. We heard that earlier in our liturgy, being cleansed with hyssop, washed, being made white like snow. The imagery of water is God's cleansing, not just removal of our guilt and sin, but the ongoing cleansing and renewal of his people. 
Jesus is the one who provides for us the Passover, lamb's blood, and also the renewing, cleansing flow of water. I've heard one commentator say that if you took John's gospel and rang it out, it would be full of water. Think of all of the times water has been used. This first miracle, wedding at Cana. All of the vats of water turned into wine. The woman at the well, the Samaritan, who is told that Jesus will give her water and she will never thirst again. The man who is waiting to be healed in the pool of Bethesda. Jesus says, no, you don't need those healing waters. You need me. Of course, Jesus standing up and declaring the Feast of Booths, I am the living water. All who are thirsty, come to me. Jesus is identified so many times in John's Gospel with water. And here again on the cross, we see the imagery of water being brought out because it is Jesus who provides not just our forgiveness, but all of the cleansing power, all of the renewing work of his spirit that will be poured out on his disciples after his resurrection. Jesus is in control even after his death has taken place. His bones were not broken because he was in control. In our other passage here, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Comes from Zechariah chapter 12. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. The firstborn, the only child, the weeping over the loss of the son is the same imagery of that original Passover that the angel of death came and took the firstborn. Indeed, Jesus has taken that punishment. Jesus has taken that judgment. Jesus has borne in himself this fate. Zechariah goes on to talk about the blessings of this sacrifice. Just a few verses later, 13, chapter 1. On that day there will be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse themselves from sin and uncleanness. When the firstborn is died, the one who is pierced, the fountain will be opened Sounds like a hymn we might be familiar with. There is a fountain full of blood flowing from our Savior. And that is here, fulfilled in this passage, that he has been pierced in the fountain of blood and water, all that we need to be made right and cleansed and be brought wholly into God's presence, forgiven and accepted as sons. Not by many mere accident, but by Jesus' perfect control of all that he has come to do. 
It is that day. The fountain has been opened that we might cleanse ourselves from our sins in his blood. Of course, Isaiah chapter 53, we've quoted it much in these past few weeks. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. That upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. Because of our transgressions, he was pierced. But there's a greater fulfillment of this one who was pierced. It comes from us in Revelation chapter 1. It's a warning to those who pierced him. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. John wants people to believe just as he believes that this is the one who is going to fulfill all that has been promised. He is the one that is going to bring these promises from Zechariah chapter 12. He is the one who is bringing the promises of Isaiah chapter 53. Because if he is not the Passover lamb, if these things aren't true, well then we are still dead in our sins. We have no other sacrifice. He wants us to believe that we might participate in this redeeming work of Christ on behalf of his people. The Passover lamb has been slain. The rules have been followed to a T. And then our scene changes a bit as we get to verse 38. And here we begin to see the exaltation of who the people who were there at the time, who believed in Christ, who saw this horrific treatment, this horrific death, and began to understand how he fulfilled these scriptures, knew he truly was the king, the king from Psalm chapter 2. And we see that here in these verses as we look to the second half of our passage. Verse 38, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Interesting how a man like Joseph of Arimathea, who was a secret disciple of Jesus, who was afraid of the religious leaders, was afraid of being ostracized from the temple, here seems to have overcome those fears. He's even willing to go to the Roman governor and identify with the man they just crucified. No doubt would have been known to the Jews as the one who came to take his body down. And then we're told in verse 39 that Nicodemus also comes. Do you remember Nicodemus, the man who came to Jesus at night? likely in secret, to really see who Jesus was. And he didn't understand what it meant to be born again. How can one be born again? We 
We see a change in Nicodemus and his view of Jesus as well. See, these two men, these two men have come to that fountain from Zechariah chapter 13. They have been changed. They have seen what John has seen, and they have come to believe in a way that will cause them to lose much, lose their reputation, Likely Nicodemus, a teacher of the people, would lose his place of authority. But here we see this extravagant gift that Nicodemus brings. He came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Now the weight there is a little bit ambiguous. It could be somewhere between 50 and 100 pounds. Have you ever bought spices? You know, I, sometimes I'll go to the grocery store and buy ginger, and it's like, seems like overpriced for the, the, the pound. And then I take the piece I need, and I go and I check out, and it weighs like, you know, half an ounce, and it only costs three cents. It's because you don't buy spices by the pound. You buy it by the ounce or the, just the little tiny bit you need. But here, Nicodemus shows up with these spices, 75 pounds of spices, myrrh and aloes. No doubt, a, not an insignificant amount of money would have been spent here. And if you think about the way in which they would have buried bodies at this time, they, they weren't embalming Jesus. They didn't take his organs out, try to preserve his carcass. No, what they did is they would wrap the body, and each time they would put another layer, they would cover him. That there would be this aromatic smell. It was a way to show great honor. In fact, we're told back when the woman broke the jar, the nard, how expensive it would have been, a whole year's wage. I don't know what Nicodemus spent for these 75 pounds to anoint Jesus' body, but what we know is that this is a king's burial. This is a king's burial. Now, I don't know how you go about putting 75 pounds of spices on a dead body. It seems like a little bit too much. How do you put 75 pounds of oil and spices on anything? It is an image of the ex, uh, extravagance of what they are doing. Uh, we can see this in uh, several extra-biblical texts, but also in the burial of King Asa from Second Chronicles chapter 16. We're told this, they buried him in a tomb that they had cut for himself in the city of David, and they laid him on a bier that had been filled with all various kinds of spices prepared by the perfumer's art, and they made a very great fire in his honor. Kings at this time, before and afterwards, and this king Asa, here many years before, they couldn't even get all of the spices on them, so they would create a mound in the tomb, on the platform where they would lay the body. They would pile it up and place the king on it because he was being so honored. In fact, there's accounts of other kings where they would just burn the spices. They didn't know what to do with them all. And they would say, why would you do such a thing? It was to show how great and how mighty the king was, how honored his burial would be. 
And so when we see Jesus being buried in this way, we ought to have in mind that he is being given a king's burial. Indeed, it would have been likely for many people who had died at the hands of the Roman not to be buried at all, but to be thrown out into the fire that Jesus talks about. But Jesus doesn't receive that treatment. Instead, he gets the royal burial of a Jewish king. They bound it in linen cloths with the spices, which was the custom of the Jews. Now, in the place that he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. We're told in the other accounts that Joseph of Arimathea actually owned this tomb. But I want you to take a second and think about maybe some of the more typological things that are taking place. The Passover lamb, who is slain for the forgiveness of the sins, who is anointed as the king, the firstborn son. Is brought to a garden. Jesus is bringing all of the Old Testament together in his death. We talked about the way in which he fulfilled other sacrifices last week. Here I want to point us to how Jesus brings us back to even the garden where it all began. And if you think about the Garden of Eden where Adam sins, what is his Punishment that he would surely die. And yet we see that God has mercy on Adam and does not smite him in the moment, but instead exiles him from the garden. We ought to might think that there is a tomb in the garden that Adam was never placed in. His death sentence was not fully executed in that moment. Instead, God had mercy. And he made a promise that one would come and defeat Satan himself. And here, Jesus enters into a garden. And Jesus goes to that tomb and he takes the place for Adam. He takes the place not only for Adam, but for all of his posterity, all of those who would descend from him, all of us who are dead in our sins and trespasses. Jesus comes as the fulfillment of the promise, as we said last week, who has crushed the head of the serpent at the place of the skull and does so in his own body, dying the death that Adam deserved, that you deserve, that I deserve. But Jesus was not thrown out into that fiery place where bodies were burned by the Romans. Instead, he was put into a tomb. And as we'll see in the week ahead, he doesn't stay there long. John wants us to believe. 
John wants us to understand that this is the only way we will escape our own fiery judgment death. That it is Christ who has died. It is Christ who has filled the tomb for us. It is Christ who allows us to escape the burning of the fire outside of the city. May we look to his Passover sacrifice for us. May we remember that he is the one who provides for us the blood. May we stop trusting in whatever it is we often look to for forgiveness, for righteousness, for a way to be cleansed or made better, but instead look to the one who opened up the fountain where blood and water was poured out so you could be forgiven and made holy. The king who was buried was given this opulent gift of spices, gave so much more for his people, so much more for you. May his death not be in vain. May we have the blood placed on us, and may we wash ourselves in the water that flows from his side. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Christ has provided our purification and our forgiveness by dying the death we deserved. Lord, help us to trust in him, to enter through the tomb he filled so that we can come out of it with him. Father, help us to turn from our own self-righteousness, instead to see the heinousness of our sin that caused Jesus to be pierced, to be crushed, to be crucified and died. May we rejoice that he did it willingly, that we could be forgiven and find life in his name. Father, may your spirit do what John intended through this word, that we would believe, and that by believing we would have life. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.